Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I remember getting home and like showering and getting ready for bed. And then my son's father, he puts on Mahalia Jackson. And as he put her on, I'm just sitting in the bed and I was like pouting. And he was like, what's wrong? I was like, I just wish this baby would give me a sign. I was like, God, I know you're answering other prayers right now, but (laughs) could you just give me a sign? I was like, I just need a sign from this baby. I just need a sign. And I just was in that energy. I just need a sign. Please just give me a sign, Lord. Just give me a sign. You know, I'm here, a humble servant, just here to let you order my steps. And I would just love if you could just, you know, help me to see the path forward, you know, in this moment. And right now I don't see a path. And so if you could just give me a sign. And I sat there for like 20 minutes. And then suddenly I heard this sound like this, a pop. And then I felt this warmth and I was like, oh my God, I think my water broke. It was like TV. And my son's father was like, no, you're peeing. I was like, I promise you it's not pee. And I stood up and water came. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. I'm your host of At the End of the Tunnel. And if this happens to be your first time listening to the show, here is what you're in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And in the case of this week's guest, Latham Thomas is a birthing doula. And she is the founder of a platform called Mama Glow, which is based in New York City. So Latham grew up in Oakland. And as a child, she was drawn to all things natural. She spent a lot of her time outdoors, exploring nature, dabbling in urban gardening. And she eventually went on to earn a degree in environmental sciences. And then she got pregnant at 23. And while giving birth, she had this strange out-of-body experience. And she recalled seeing lights and having visions of her ancestors And it was a very unexpected development, as you can imagine, for somebody going into labor. Anyway, she gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. And then later, a healer at an ashram told her that she was destined to mother the mother. And at the time, she didn't know exactly what that meant. But then shortly after receiving this cosmic insight, Latham found out that she had been accepted into a doula program that she didn't even remember applying for. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term doula, a doula is someone who provides education and support to prepare a laboring mother or couple for childbirth. Usually they come into the picture at around 20 to 25 weeks of pregnancy and they offer support in the early postpartum period as well. So while it's very soulful and heartfelt work, as you can imagine, 
being a doula wasn't exactly seen as a fast track to financial stability in an expensive city like New York. And so Latham got some pushback from well-meaning friends about the viability of going all in as a doula, which is what she was feeling called to do at the time. But what they didn't understand was how naturally gifted and talented of a doula that Latham would become because of her upbringing and all of the exposure she had to nature and to health and to wellness in her life. So Latham stayed the course and she struggled here and there to make ends meet as she started out. But then she started having these ideas of hosting a birthing film festival, which she was able to pull off successfully. And then she partnered with some of her celebrity mom friends in a salon series, which was also successful. And she kept just following her passion and taking the next step. And over time, Latham became known as one of the top doulas in New York City. And she went on to be featured in Oprah's Super Soul 100, which is a list of changemakers who are out there in the world making a huge impact on the lives of others and recognized by the likes of Oprah Winfrey. Latham has written books and guided meditations, and her work through her platform, Mama Glow, now transcends the birthing experience and extends into all aspects of health and wellness and lifestyle, not just for women, but for anybody interested in living a more fulfilled life. I also feel honored to be able to call Latham a friend. She and I met several years ago, and this was indeed one of my favorite I won't call it an interview because it felt much more like a soulful conversation and a catch up with a dear friend, but it was definitely up there with the top episodes to date, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we get into my conversation with Latham, I was curious, have you ever meditated for 108 days in a row? Because if not, I have a challenge for you. I want to invite you to join my 108-day meditation challenge. The 108-Day Challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which teaches practices like meditation, obviously, for increasing happiness within. And the way it works is you pay an entry fee of $39, and that will give you access to a seven-day meditation kickstart, which will teach you everything you need to know in order to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day. And you'll get daily prompts, you'll get accountability, to help support you in your 108-day commitment. And then by the end, not only are you a daily meditator because you've done it successfully for over 100 days in a row, but you're also a part of a community of other daily meditators, which helps for support. And it's kind of like running a marathon with other meditators cheering you along each step of the way. And the best part is once you cross the finish line, your $39 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've already gone through the challenge successfully, and it's designed to help you finally become a daily meditator. So to get more information, go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let me help you take your inner practices to the next level. Now let's dive into the backstory of Latham Thomas and find out how a vision that she had during childbirth led her to discover her path to Mama Glow. Latham, it's an honor having you on my podcast. You and I have been acquaintances for what, like five years, six years? When did I first when did we first meet? Do you remember? That's such a good question, but I feel like 
I know we would see each other at different times in New York, but I can't remember how we actually met one another. Was it Summit and then New York? Yeah, I think maybe it was Summit. Was it on the boat or was it in? We were on a boat, y'all. Yes. We were on a boat. That's right. Oh my God. That was in 2015 or something like that. So it's been six years. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And anyway, when I first met you, I was thinking this is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And you kind of live that standard of not just external beauty, because you're obviously externally very beautiful, but just internally you're glowing. And so it's not surprising that you've created all the things that you've created. Yeah. So I'm excited to kind of dig a little deeper into the backstory because as a black woman who becomes this entrepreneur, super connected into all these different communities, I know it wasn't easy, (laughs) you know, and there were some challenges and there were some obstacles and all the things that come with just being a woman, being a black person, being in America and so I want to talk about some of those experiences for the other Black girls and, and the women and people who also aspire to something greater than what they think is possible for themselves. So thanks for coming on. Oh, my God. First of all, Light, thank you. Y'all can't see him right now, but <laughs> it's a vision, a total vision. And what a name to be living into each day, right, of light, of levity, of the dawn and the day, what what carries us, right? What nurtures us, what fortifies us, anchors us until night comes. And then at night we have candlelight, right? Mm-hmm. And so just thank you for being living sustenance, right? Through this name and also through the embodiment and through fellowship. You really hold and carry that name well. And you live into the practices that allow you to continue to walk in the light. And so I'm honored to be here. And thank you for holding me here. Yeah. I feel like we both sort of painted ourselves into corners, but these are the best kind of corners to be in with, the, with our names, with our brands, Mama Glow and, and all of that. You grew up in Oakland. Yeah. And my kickoff question to all of my guests is when you think back to Little Latham, I don't know what, I know a lot of Black people have nicknames. Mine was Chipper. Did you have a nickname? Yes, Danny, D A N I, Danielle. So I had Danny, Danny Bird, Dan Wan from my grandfather. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah, Black people never get called their real names. No. <laughs> you go to school and you're like, this is my name. They're like, that's not your government. So, <laughs> so when you think back to little Danny, <laughs> did you have a favorite toy or activity? A couple of things come up around that, but primarily I remember Cabbage Patch Dolls, which by the way, you had to be in the 80s. You had to grow up then to know what we're talking about, but Cabbage Patch Dolls. And my mother really worked hard to get black ones because you just couldn't find black dolls back in the day. And so she had to like order. And by the way, like now we can go to stores and I don't know how people buy toys now because I don't see toy stores in the same way, but we used to go to Toys R Us or someplace to buy Mm -hmm. them. But these dolls, you couldn't just get on the shelf. So she had to order them. So she went through a really like a concerted Mm -hmm. effort to make sure that I had dolls that looked like me to play with. So I remember Cabbage Patch dolls were like my number one, probably favorite toy. I heard a rumor that you would pretend like you were pregnant the Cabbage Patch dolls. Is that true? So when I was about four years old and my mother was pregnant, my aunt was pregnant and my great aunt, which was my mother's aunt, 
and they were all due within a month of each other, March, April, and May. And so what I was witnessing was just pregnancy all around me. I was fascinated by it. My mother taught me a lot about pregnancy, a lot about anatomy. And so some of the shows I would watch on PBS were around pregnancy and birth preparation. And so my only way to sort of model my dramatic play was to also pretend to be pregnant. And so we would stuff Cabbage Patch dolls under our shirts. And then me and my cousin would pretend to deliver each other's babies. So it was forecasting. And it was interesting because those little seeds like were kind of like breadcrumbs, right? That sort of kept me along a path. But at that time, I wouldn't know that it was going to lead to where I am today. But I see those really important pieces of like my childhood to have been parts of a constellation, right? Along the journey. And so, yeah, I would definitely say like having been able to be that age where I was old enough to witness and be fascinated and also at the same time have imagination and, you know, the way that children think through things are so incredible and the way they problem solve is so incredible. And so I was able to use what I was listening to and watching and just model that through dramatic play. But it was definitely with Cabbage Patch Dolls. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. And I think Cabbage Patch Dolls was like the first panic buy experience I'd ever witnessed as a child as well, because they were sold out everywhere. You had to know somebody to get one. And my mom would go to Toys R Us, like you said, and try to order it and all of this. So you also had an interesting relationship with nature growing up. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you derived from that experience in nature and in around nature? Yeah. So growing up in a place like Oakland, where it was urbane in many ways, it was also really wild in the 80s. And I, I don't mean in terms of, I think in terms of the landscape, right, more than anything else. There was also this kind of pulse that I think was informed by liberation movements and Black power that was at the seat, right? And so 
my orientation around plant allies that we use to fortify our bodies. So like plant systems, looking at botany, herbalism was through a lens of seeing plants, first of all, like growing through the concrete that were weeds, that were weeds that actually supported the immune system, for instance, like dandelion or going in the hills that were like across the street from the house and hiking through and seeing like mushrooms and understanding and learning at an early age how mycelium actually creates the the forest bed and, and supports the immune system of the forest, right? And then is the actually the internet of the forest, right? And then learning about plants and learning to listen to plants and like sort of meditate along plants, alongside plants was really how I also learned when it was the right time to collect them for harvesting and to create medicine with them. And so the relationship I developed was one of plants being like allies, being a part of our life, being part of what we we use for protection, for healing, but also that we respect and, and see as a relationship that is symbiotic. And so I think that that also informed my university experience, my high school and and beyond. But I definitely think that how I think back to our childhood, we were always outside. By the way, there was no internet. There was no talking on the phone, like none of this stuff. It was just, you go outside and you played in groups and you discovered things. And so a lot of it too was like stumbling upon stuff and learning as well. And climbing over people's fences to like get their plums. (laughs) You know, there was this neighbor who had these plums and we would only want them when they were sour before they got ripe. And so we would pluck them too soon, but we would all be under there like sneaking plums or on the way to school, there were blackberries and we knew just where to go to like divert to get some of the blackberries on the way to school. And like things like this, you just learned. And it was like our own little urban foraging that we did as kids And I realize now, like, we were really blessed to have had access to the landscape in that way and also to not have this barrier or this sense of, like, me and then this over here. Like, it was really just connected. Like, we never just really saw ourselves apart from it. It was like, oh, yeah, this is just part of our life. And so where I see kids today where there's just like this separation of their understanding of the ecosystem. They talk about the environment, like it's out there and not like inside. Right. And so I think that our compass around what it meant to tend to our environment was different because we're actually living in it and Mm. part of it and outside in it. And, you know, it was underneath our nail beds, right. There was dirt. It was in between our toes because we were barefoot. It was, in our bellies because we're eating things and, and connecting and consuming nature, right? And also watching seasons change because we were always outside. So I think that that was a really important part of my upbringing as well. So you have the nature component. Yeah. You have your mom is, I, I don't know when they separated, but your mom is not with your dad, right? Yep. And so there's that yeah. happening. And you're in Oakland. And so there's, that's the home of Black Panthers and Black Power. So what was the conversation like in your house regarding you being a woman, being a Black woman, being an aspect of nature? Like what kind of philosophies or ideologies did your mom echo or your grandmother echo while you were coming up or your dad, you're down in, in Southern California. Yeah, Just what I do you remember? That you know, all these things, you know, <laughs> all of the things. It's like, 
turns on a light and goes inside of your entire like mental landscape (laughs) and pulls everything out. So a few things, I would say my mom, right? Like one of the things that she really did well was concepts that maybe she didn't fully want to teach on her own or understand how to teach on her own. She bought books. So I had these libraries of books about amazing black inventors or people who had accomplished things in black history libraries of these books, or even there was like this, almost like an encyclopedia. And for each of the people, it was like a different person for, for each book. And they were all like amazing leaders in black history. Then she went to this place called Marcus books, which is the oldest black owned bookstore in the country. It's over 60 years old. So I was always at Marcus books getting a new book. And so after getting good grades or whatever it would be, we would be up in there getting books. And so I remember that being a part of my upbringing as well. I remember that my mother was so aware of like injustice and would always call things out that I didn't understand at the time. And she would, you know, speak to things that really like upset her that happened to us that we didn't really understand. For instance, there was this thing called a gift of blackness, which was like an award that was for students. And we were in at this point in an all white school in middle school, and they just gave them out to everybody black. And in all the other schools that were a part of this thing, it was to one singular individual who they believe like embodied, you know, certain principles. And so she was like, wait a minute, you're just going to give them out to everybody. And so she went in and caused this whole fuss about like, this doesn't mean anything because my daughter and then everybody else. And, and I was like, mom, it's okay. She's like, no, it's not okay. And so little things like this, she was so uh, keenly aware of and also talked about how we have to work harder. And there's an all see that sometimes the things that I do will not get recognition. And I have to be prepared for that because she's like, a lot of people will not recognize that you have gifts and that. A lot of people won't recognize that you've worked hard, but you have to be committed to working hard regardless of recognition, even though I'm going to fight for you to be recognized, right? So she was really like this as well. My grandmother was someone where you could go and hang out in her den, which was like off the kitchen, and she would be cooking some gumbo or making coffee, which she actually had us drink as kids, which I was like, why are we drinking coffee? It's going to stunt our growth. But she would give out coffee and she would make cakes. There was always a fresh cake in the kitchen or a pie or shortbread cookies or something after school that you could just go and get under the pie stand. And then she would cook you something to eat. And then you could just go get a book. And so I would always read about astrology in her house. And then we would all like do each other's charts and stuff, you know, at granny's house. We would play cards and she would just, I would just listen to her talk because in a black household, which many people, may know, but also people who don't know, there's a thing when the adults come in, their voices really dominate and you're just listening. So you might be watching your grandmother cook something and learning by just watching, but you don't get to go to the stove yet. You don't get to do anything really helpful in the kitchen yet, but you can listen to the grown folks conversation and you can watch and learn. And so a lot of the things that I learned was just through like sitting, you know, on a stool or hanging out, just like listening and waiting for the time that I could grow up to be a part of those conversations. And what I saw a lot of amongst my mother and my grandmother too, were lessons around 
self-care, about like how to adorn oneself, how to take care of oneself, how to rest. My granny would have this ritual and I would just watch her every night. Like if we spent the night, she would be combing her hair and then she would tie it up and then she would do this whole routine on her face. And then she would, you know, massage, like do all these amazing things. It would take her so long to get ready for bed. And I was like, wow, like all of this, but it was like enchanting to watch. And even in her final days and really final hours living, I remember her skin was so smooth still. It was like baby skin because this is what she did every single day of her adult life. And so things like this were lessons that I learned, like to really take that time, like to ritualize rest and, you know, go to bed in a certain way, you know, wake up a certain way. And then I think my mother also taught around, you know, she would get massages. And so I watched through her, like she would have a certain day. It was like usually Wednesday where she would get the massage. We would have to cook our own food. She would go to bed. And then the massage therapist would hang out with us afterwards. So I'd be cooking and I would make food for them too. And then we would all hang out, but they would teach us skills. So then I learned a lot of like hands-on techniques that I could do for self-touch, but also that we could do on each other and on our mom. And, and so that was also really empowering to like get those kind of skills early on again, which it really informed my life today. So understanding that like a lot of what I do does mean that I come in contact with people that I lay on hands that I touch. It's a high touch experience. It's connective. And so knowing how to use therapeutic touch and healing touch is really critical. And so all of these things, I feel like kind of created a really wonderful foundation, but also helped me to, I think, anchor in self-love in a way that was more demonstrative, right? In my environment versus like telling me, oh, you should love yourself. It was more like I watched people love on themselves. I watched how, you know, time was taken for self-care. I watched all these things. We didn't have words for them, but it was part of a discipline for yourself. And it was also part of how we were taught to spend time at home. Like my mom also encouraged us to be alone, like go be by yourself, (laughs) like go over there or go give your ears and your mouth a break and go over there. Like she would always encourage us to take some time away. So that's why I was super like into going outside and being by myself and like humming in the garden or going into like a forest or, or going on a, on a hike and, and being with plants. And I could be totally fine hours alone doing that. But that was like also something that was poured into me, you know, that like being alone is also really nutritive and self-sustaining. It's something that you should be able to do. You don't need to only be alone, but you should have the capacity to be able to be alone. So it's been really good for me as an adult and living through time like quarantine to have already had that be a part of my upbringing. Let's talk about Fountain Valley School. It's oh in Colorado. Yeah. I can't imagine that it's there are a lot of black people at this school. So no. What did you <laughs> What did you learn about the differences in black culture and white culture from that experience? Well, first of all, like the very first experience I had when we went to visit the school, my dad brought me and I'm from Cali, right? So I wore like Converse and had you know, <laughs> saying, the canvas ones, right? So I did, mm. we get, we land 
And when we get there, I was like, there's snow on the ground. And I was like, dad, there's snow. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't have snow boots. Like I'm walking through snow. I was like, mom, my feet are wet. Like, so the whole thing, but that was my very first experience. So one of the things that occurred that I want to share that is an example of the ways that these spaces that people often fight so hard to put their children in, you know, really good school opportunity, all this. And a lot of these spaces are really anti-Black. And so for me, going into a space like that, like 14 years old, you know, I was looking around and there wasn't as many of us there, right? And so part of you has to figure out how to navigate in a world where you're outnumbered. And Mm -hmm. also, who are you in community with? Who is it that you could feel supported by? And, And so I was finding those networks and establishing those connections early And I also was like a kid that was very social. So I I had a really good fan group. But there were a few teachers that really I felt connected to. One was my Spanish teacher, Mr. Pino, who was Cuban and he was black. And he just really was one of those people who was like looking out, like you could tell was looking out for you. And there were my science teacher, two of my science teachers. And I was really, really good at science. And so, and it's particularly biology. But then there was one teacher that really set a tone to sort of destabilize me. And he was a science teacher as well. And I think it was, he was my first science teacher and when I was a freshman and I went to his class one day, I was, I was the only black person. There was one girl in the class who was mixed, but I think she was really not like, she wasn't really identifying black or anything. So I was really by myself. <laughs> and so, um, so, cause I'm looking at her like, yo, like, you know, <laughs> and she's just like, yeah, girl, like, you know, so she just wasn't with me, but I'm in the <laughs> class. Okay. And he says this out loud to the entire class, mind you, one black person in the room, maybe two. He says, I'm a racist. <laughs> like, and let it, and let it hang like this. And he said about this one thing that black people cannot float, nor can they swim, but really let's talk about how they cannot float. And I was like looking around and like shrinking into myself. And he used this to talk about density, to talk about muscle density. He talked about how black people versus white people And the differences in body type, the differences in muscle density and fat on their bodies and how fat bodies or bodies with less muscle are going to float more easily. Black bodies have more bone and muscle density and they cannot float. There's a way to say that, but not the way he said it. And also there's a lot of science that like also debunks that because by the way, that's using also some eugenics conversations that we thought that was like behind us. And so it was a frightening moment, honestly. And it was one where I told my mother and the next time that she came up there, she lit him up. She called the school and she made these complaints. And and this is like when you have a mom that like really does fight for you and advocate for you that, you know, that like when you tell them something that they're going to, you know, go off. And I remember telling her and just being so upset because I also didn't have the internal resources to navigate that moment. I was 14. Right. 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 
So I didn't know how to really locate it in my body. I just knew it felt not good. I didn't know. And I also was like, wait a minute, this is sending me outside of myself. Like I'm like disassociating in this. I need to come back to my body, right? Like I knew that like kids were looking at me also. And I just was trying to like go away, but I Mm. knew I had to come back. But I also knew I had to come back. because I had to recall the experience to be able to like tell people so they could also help me. And so there were things like that that would happen in boarding school. There were a lot of Native American kids and we all connected. So there was a bunch of people of color who really connected and formed really great bonds. But yeah, I would say that's a great example of being in a situation where it was to signal me that you're not welcome, to signal me that you're not safe, even though a lot of my experiences there were not like this and were totally fine. That was one of them that was really destabilizing at the onset, you know, my first year. Right. So Mm -hmm. imagine having to knowing that that kind of stuff may come, like how you get desensitized as it continues. Right. And so I think that there were things that I probably can't even recall because I think that I might've just absorbed them or I can't even recall them because they were things that I just learned to deal with. It's also juxtaposed against this idea that you're in a very privileged position for a young Black girl in this elite boarding school in the middle of Colorado. And, you know, and you're around these very influential people, but the day-to-day reality of that isn't exactly what it appears to be, you know, and that's what Malcolm X was talking about. And a lot of other Black leaders have talked about, you know, you don't want the oppressor educating your children because they might say some stupid shit like Black people can't float and be dead serious. (laughs) Exactly. And, And I think that there were so many things that I'm grateful for the experience. I'm glad I went. But at the same time, you have to be doing the learning at home. You have to be doing the foundational work if you're going to put your kid in, a, in an environment like that. And I also don't think I'm 100% sold on us sending our kids into places that we know are not designed to help them thrive. I think that mm. that has to really be revisited amongst ourselves. Like we got to think about how do we actively divest in places like this? What do we want to build? Like, what is the future we want to build? And let's let's create institutions and spaces that are going to support our kids. What was your idea of success as a teenager based on what you saw in your mom's life, your dad's life, this school? Like, how are you thinking about when I grow up, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll be successful? Oh, that's such a great question, Light. I hope we can reach back and grab what that would have been. My dad used to always say, oh, you want to own your own business. You want to be an entrepreneur. So we kind of had that in our mind. He actually dissuaded us from playing sports. He was like, oh, you should own the sports team. Don't be on the field playing, which I don't agree with <laughs> because I, I think there's a lot of value in playing on a team and you know yeah. having that experience. But that's something I still remember him, him saying wow. when I was a kid. Right. That's interesting because in sports were huge for us. Like I was really good at sports, but also it was a good lane for me, but definitely not one that I thought professionally. I think that a lot of what success looked like was shaped by my mother's desire for me to achieve. And what that looked like was obviously grades, right. Are huge in the household. It's like, what are the grades? Like, I don't really want to, 
I ain't trying to hear all of that. Let me see the report card, right? Like, what? Like, no. What are grades? Yeah. Abstract. You're trying yeah. to extract grades. What are grades? Like, what is it, you know? No, What's time? Right, exactly. Mm. It was not this. It was like, show me the grades. They better be A's. And if not, punishment. And so I think that the experience that I had was really this sort of punitive model of you do this and you do a good job of it. And there's not going to be anything on the other side of it, but that's just the expectation. But if you do this and you don't do a good job, there are consequences. And so I think that success, like, I don't think I was even able to really envision kind of what that could look like because I was so geared towards, I have to do things a certain way because there's this expectation. I had this weight on my shoulders that like, I was the first one to boarding school and then the first to go to university in this way. And so I think that because of that, I felt shrouded in responsibility. Like I felt like I had to do everything perfectly. And so success, I think to me at that age was, getting everything right, like doing everything is like my mom expected it. And then also my team, right? So com- competition, whether it's field hockey, track and field, basketball or soccer, whatever it was like that, I did everything right. And so there was enormous pressure in that sense, especially in sports, because a lot of the sports I did, if there were mistakes to be made, they could be blamed on you because the, the there was, even if they were team oriented, there were still independent aspects of those sports that people who are really talented carried a lot of of weight. So I think that that's what I was looking at. But the other piece of it in terms of like a community vision for what success looked like, I always loved the idea when I was younger of being able to pay for everybody. So it would be like if you rolled up and were like, yo, let me hold $40 and be like, yo, here's a hundred. Or if someone needed something, like if, you know, if there was someone homeless, like I would want to provide them with something. Like when we were younger, we were trying to be like, okay, we made this many peanut butter sandwiches. We're going into the park. We're distributing these peanut butter sandwiches. And we had all these amazing ideas and adults would get in the way because we were like distributing sandwiches. And then adults were like, well, you could get sued. We're like, what? You get sued for giving out peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And so it became this thing where now like all the things that you just have like this healthy dose of naivete and desire to support becomes clouded by adults thinking about like the legality of what you're doing, right? Rather than like the the joy and the support that you're offering individuals just just out of like what you have as kids. Like there's some peanut butter and jelly in the fridge, right? And so for me, like being able to support other people was big. And I still love that idea, but really it was like if anybody in my community needed something, I would want to pay for it. If somebody needed to go to school, I would want to be able to pay for it. And not have to say, I'm giving you a loan. Like, oh, you need this. You're starting this. You're doing this. Like, here's the money. And I love the idea of being able to do that. But it's also part of kind of how our community would gather and say, all right, this person has this or needs this or is going to school. Let's all gather up some funds and and help them out like that. But singularly being able to do that for someone. Mm -hmm. That's I think that was like a big thing for me as a kid. Like that would be success. When you got pregnant at 23. Was that a moment of celebration? Or were you thinking, oh my God, this is going to take me off my path, but I'm going to do it anyway? 
first of all, I don't think I had a path. I don't think I knew what my path was at 23. You know, like when I think back on it, I was just, you know, out here in the streets in New York City, like running around, having fun. And my son was very much wanted. I did not like plan to be pregnant, but I knew that I wanted to be a mom and he was very much wanted. And so I knew that I had gotten pregnant actually. So I was like aware and I just confirmed it by getting a pregnancy test, but I knew. And I was so connected with him, the whole pregnancy. It was like deeply spiritual. It was deeply grounding for me as somebody who was out of college, who sort of like needed to kind of anchor herself. Mm -hmm. It was anchoring for me to have that pregnancy. And it was also during a time where there was like no social media and no none of the things that we have now that are really distracting, but that are also really great for like documenting. I had none of that. So I just have like the recall in my mind and all the memories, the living memories of like different experiences I had throughout that time. And I have like Polaroids and like random pictures and like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff I have to like recall it. But I definitely remember it being joyful. I definitely remember it being, you know, I was the first one in my friend group. So that part was hard because nobody really knew what to do or how to support or anything. And I was sort of like the pioneer in the friend group who was, who was having a baby, but I definitely felt supported through my friends and in the experience. And and obviously through the birth, like it was so transformative for me. And I'm just thankful that I had the experience that I desire, but that I also had this foundational understanding of my body, of, of nature, of it's like primal blueprint from within that I was able to tap into. And I think that was really only possible because of how I was brought up and then also, yeah, like how connected I was with my body. Did you believe in that it was possible to see entities or spirits or ancestors or any of that stuff? And can you share the story of what happened during your birth? Yes. So I had two experiences that one that I had and one that my mom spoke about. So the first one, I remember being at school and I remember I was like in third or I think I was in third grade because I had switched schools for a year and then went back to my original school. And at this new school, I remember there was a willow tree and it cast a huge shadow onto the playground. And so walking over there, it would almost be like night. So like you would be out in the light and walking around and then you would go under there and you almost like disappear. So I remember we were playing something with a ball because I had to go over there to get the ball. And I remember getting to the ball and looking up and being in this cast of darkness and like seeing an entity and being like, oh, hey, and feeling like they were talking to me. And I just was looking at them and they were looking at me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back over there and play now. And then I just left. And then I remember telling, I think I told my grandmother, I definitely told my mom, I think it's my grandmother too. She's like, oh yeah, like, you know, spirits and stuff. And she's like, well, if you want to talk to them more, you just light incense and that's the medium that they can breathe, right? They can actually breathe smoke. So then they'll show up again. I was like, oh, okay. So she just didn't make it a weird thing or, She didn't try to explain it, but she was like, if you want them to come back, just some incense and let it be dark or, you know, let it be candlelight or something. And they they come. I was like, oh, okay. So I just was like led to believe that that was okay. And then with my mother, when I was born, actually, the night before, 
she had gotten this vision. She went to bed, she woke up in the night and she saw a light. She saw a light and it was across the room and it was really, really, really bright. And she went around the corner into the kitchen and on the wall in light, in the handwriting of her grandmother who had passed, her grandmother's cursive, it said girl, written in like light, basically, uh, on the wall, projected. And she remembers that. She's like, oh my God, it's a girl. And so she called everybody up. It's a girl, it's a girl, it's a girl. And I came the next afternoon, a, a girl. And that was another thing that she told me, yeah, I had this vision and then you came. And so I was always connected to the fact that you can have this experience within your body, beyond your body. But I did not expect that that was going to happen in my birth with my son. So it was something that I believe imprinted me for this work and and really helped to cement for me the calling. But I'll get into the fact that I didn't listen to the calling for a while because I'm a Taurus and we're stubborn, but it did cement (laughs) the messaging. And and, and so, so how that went was that the night before, right? So this is uh, July 12th of 2003 and it's a full moon and I'm 41 weeks along and, and babies take about on average, you know, 40 weeks plus three days, sometimes 41 weeks for first time babies generally. And, you know, second time and beyond, usually like around 40. And so babies take their time. They're born on their birthdays, as I say, right? And so this baby decided that he was just taking his time. And so one of the things that I did was I was walking, you know, walking, walking, walking all throughout New York City. And again, it's summer, July 2003. So you already know it was hot outside, right? So I was just like, yo, we need to talk. Like, you need to come, (laughs) right? Like, it's time. I'm tired. It's hot. And, you know, we didn't really have AC like that. So it was very warm. And so I remember getting home and like showering and getting ready for bed. And my son's father, he puts on Mahalia Jackson. And as he put her on, I'm just sitting in the bed. I was like pouting. And he was like, what's wrong? I was like, I just wish this baby would give me a sign. You know, I was like, I was like, God, just like. I know you're answering other prayers right now, but like, <laughs> could you just give me a sign? I was like, I just need a sign from this baby. I just need a sign. And I just was in that energy. I just need a sign. Please just give me a sign, Lord. Just give me a sign. You know, like, you know, I'm here, a humble servant, just here to like, let you order my steps. And I would just love if you could just, you know, help me to see the path forward, you know, in this moment. And Right now, I don't, I don't see a path. And, and so if you could just give me a sign. And I sat there for like 20 minutes. And then suddenly I heard this sound like this, a pop. And then I felt this warmth. And I was like, oh my God, I think my water broke. It was like TV. And my son's father was like, no, you're peeing. I was like, I promise you it's not pee. And I stood up and water came And the interesting thing about this was it was a full buck moon, which is if we're looking at native peoples and and how they actually categorize the moons, this particular one is aligned with the young bucks. They start to develop their antlers at this time. They start to come in and that's when they start to see that show up in this time of the summer. And so it's aligned with new growth and new beginnings. And so it was like a perfect auspicious moment of new beginnings and really like a beginning, right, of this birth process unfolding. And so here we are in this full moon. And the other thing about the moon that's so incredible is that it 
works and governs the waters in our bodies. And as women, the waters that maintain flow in the womb. And so as a baby is encased in in water, that water is like identical to like seawater. And so the forces of the moon working on my body under the, the intensity of the full moon, that shift in barometric pressure also helps for the water to break, you know? And so it's a really beautiful relationship that we have and that our bodies have with, you know, the, the ambient landscape and the celestial bodies as this process unfolds. And so I'm like in this process now. And of course, I want to watch jazz documentaries and stay up till six in the morning instead of going to sleep. So I did that <laughs> and I couldn't go to sleep because I was so excited. And finally, I did fall asleep. And, and once I got up, things started to unfold and it became time to, to head to the birth center, which was only seven blocks away. And I was living at 222 West 23rd and the birth center was 222 West 14th and seven, seven blocks in difference. It was divine, right? And so here I am, you know, at this beautiful place walking in and on just to preface that I was with my son's father, his godfather and his grandfather. Okay. All intense people. And so when we get there, his grandfather is like, get her in a bed, hurry. She's having a baby. And the midwives in silence, they stared and they just sat there and watched me and they didn't move. And this went on for like five minutes, silence. And then they said, okay, leave them right this way. And he goes, whoa. And it just changed the energy, right? It shifted everything from how he was being really frenetic and bringing this outside energy in. You know how Black folks will say, like, the outside, you know, we always want to, like, take off our clothes from the outside, our shoes from the outside. We want to wash the outside off. It was like, it was like washing the energy of the outside off by, like, giving that space, right, for them to transition into the birth center and into what was about to unfold. And, and so what that invited was for all of us to be in the same energy. And so then I come into the room and it's dark and it's set up like a, a bedroom and there's a tub and I'm in there most of the time and I'm dreaming, having these amazing lucid dreams. And then I would kind of wake up and feel things happening in my body. And then I would go back to sleep and it was incredible. And right before it was time for me to release my son into the world, you know, we got out of the bed and my midwife said, um, I mean, sorry, out of the tub rather. And she said, I want you to get an, into the bed and I want you to squat because his cord was wrapped around his shoulder. And as a result of that, his heartbeat would decelerate when there was a contraction. And so they didn't understand what was happening, but they just knew that it was time to have him. But they didn't make me aware of that, by the way, everybody was calm. And so they're like, let's just have the baby now. I was like, okay. So I go into the bed light and I'm there. And then suddenly I feel around me and above me, like heat, like emanating from above onto me. So it felt like I was in like a furnace, right? I felt that it just this wave of heat. And I was like, what is happening? I feel like I'm about to ignite. And I look to my left, my upper left corner, I look up and I see in the shape of a U, like a horseshoe shape, I see this fleet of ancestors above me, like just all around. 
and they had their arms crossed. And this is like way before Black Panther, so don't get no ideas, y'all. <laughs> they had their arms across their chest, like Wakanda style, right? And they were looking down and they were cloaked and they had on like these, almost like this burgundy, like reddish kind of robes kind of, and they were a human form, but like kind of not. And so I'm looking up there and I, and there was like this recognition of each of them but not by name, not by face, just like this soul recognition that these are my people who have shown up. And I looked up and I point my finger, my index finger, right? To the light and to them. And I said, I want to go there. And everybody looks and they're like, seeing the ceiling, of course, right? So they're like, <laughs> um, what you talking about? And I'm just like, I want to go there. And I feel myself, I feel like this cracking open of my physical body, like separating Mm. into the ether above me. And I'm in this liminal space, right? So I'm in this like transformative space where I'm not fully in my body. I'm somewhere else already. And so now this, this transformative event can take place, right? And I'm out of my body and I'm watching where they are. So from where they are, right, I have this astral point of view I can see everything happening in the room. So I start describing like, oh my God, like things that I could never have seen from my physical vantage point, but from my spiritual, right? From this ancestral technology that I had tapped into, I was able to see everything happening and I was able to watch my son be born. And I was telling them things that I could not physically see, that my eyes and my body were physically not looking at. And I was describing it from there. And so I had no language to describe that experience. I had no way to categorize that experience. And then when I re-entered in my body, I remember about 20 minutes later, I was like, whoa, nobody told me it would be that. Nobody said that I would be visited in this way. Nobody, like, how come people don't talk about this? Like, this is possible, right? And what I know now is that the ancestral blueprint that's in place for us, like what birth is to be transformative, birth is to be transcendent. It is a meditation. It is Hmm. an invitation for healing and for crossing a threshold and coming on the other side with something that you didn't have when you started. And it's Hmm. also an invitation to reach back and go grab the thing that you were supposed to have with you. The thing that like you might've left behind or somebody left or forgot to give to you and you can go grab it. And so in this experience, I found wholeness and I never really was walking around feeling incomplete, but it was this encompassing where I felt wholeness. I felt like a woman suddenly. I was like born into not just motherhood, but into womanhood in a different way. And I felt like that was through the anointing of my ancestors as they flanked me while my son was being born. They protected his journey and his safe passage, Mm. right? And we both came on the other side safely. So it was really transformative and beautiful and edifying and fortifying in so many ways. And it it continues to be the cornerstone of the work and, and how I speak about the protective nature, you know, the and also the the reasons that we have to protect and fight for it is not just for people to survive childbirth. It has to be more than that. It has to be about thriving, it has to be about transcendence, it has to be about you know, this invitation to heal and to connect and to grow and to expand exponentially in spirit and in flesh. 
Had you already had the Vedic astrology experience at that point, or did that come after you gave birth to your child? It came after. And you know what's interesting about that is that you would have thought this was enough, right? You would have thought this was enough to send me on TV. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm not obedient off the top, right? So here I am, hard-headed. You would have thought that was enough. God signaling me then and telling me then. And I did get the message. Like I said, I have to protect this experience. I did not know what that would look like, right? It took time for it to unfold. I started mapping at that time, but I did not know. Then came the Vedic astrology experience. And that's when it was like, okay, damn it. I hear you. Okay. I hear you. I heard you the first time. I heard you twice the first time. Let me get it together. And that experience y'all was it was right after my birthday, they did this puja. And then there was like, okay, you need to come and do this reading. And I was like, okay, great. And it's a little tiny hut and I'm claustrophobic in it, but I'm just doing this thing. But you know, I'm into divination. So I was with it. Right. So I'm like, let's do it. So I'm sitting here and this man is not speaking English that I recognize, but I heard certain things that I was able to piece together. You know, how you close your eyes and you can hear something or you're trying to decipher. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was like I was closing my eyes and I was leaning in and I was like hearing things that like it was like getting peaks of what he was saying. Like when somebody's on your phone and they're coming through in patches, it was almost like that. And I would hear words. But the one thing that I heard very clearly and that he said in very clear English, you're supposed to mother the mother. And then when he said that, I said, "Okay." I said, well, I feel like I'm already doing that. He's like, no, it's, it's not, it's not what you're doing. It's, it's bigger. He's like, bigger, bigger. He kept saying, and I was like, okay. And so he gave me some numbers. He gave me some numerology and, and here's the numbers you need to look out for in your life. And I was like, okay. And he gave me a few numbers. And of course, right after that, you're like looking for signs, right? You're like, <laughs> days, you're like okay, does this mean something? Right. And then I get back into my life and my flow and get back on course with life. And this is back when you know, people didn't check internet and email and you, I was still getting snail mail at the time. I think I might've checked my email twice a month, maybe like it was not something that you checked because you were still getting, people were still writing letters. Okay. So, mm-hmm. right. Like, and for the audience, if this is new to you, go to the stationery store. Okay. Ask for someone's mailing address and see how good your handwriting looks. Okay. Cause you're so used to texting. We used to write letters. And so I was so used to that. So Fast forward, right? Here we are. And I go to my email for some reason. And I feel called to do it for some reason. I don't know why. But I go check my email and you know how it goes ping and it's like lights up the things. And it shows me, you know how it shows you like the preview of what's in the email, like the couple lines. So it said, the title said that I had been accepted into a doula fellowship program. And I was like trying to figure out when I even applied. So I feel like spirit like had me do this process. Like I was, because I'm so freaking stubborn, it's like spirit had me do this thing in a way where I would actually complete it and upload it and whatever. Because I was like, when did I apply to this thing? I couldn't even remember. And then I saw my application. I was like, oh, I totally filled this out. And so Mm. I did that. And then I got this new affirmation that I was supposed to do this program. So I'm like looking at this, like, okay, whatever. and then look at the date. And the date was one of the days corresponding to the numbers that were on that sheet that I wrote down that he gave to me. Mm. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to let you order my steps. 
I'm going to stop resisting. I'm going to let this happen. And that's when I started to let it happen because I don't think that I envisioned for myself a path in this way. And even though I knew I wanted to be involved in the work, I didn't have like a vision for what that looked like. But I knew that I was supposed to help. I did not know how it would shape up. But it was like I had to just continue to get like these, these knocks, these whispers, and really these tangible lessons pointing me in the direction of action. And then I was like, okay, cool. You're like doing backflips to show me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just going to finally listen, (laughs) right? I mean, this is kind of like magic, which occurred here, right? So then I just took the path. And I think I would say to anyone who is feeling connected to something that feels nebulous and you can't really understand how it'll take shape, that this is how stars are formed, right? Like, you know, gases, you know, form and made many star nurseries that are like nebulous in form. And then they actually take shape and become stars. But you don't know what that looks like at first. It's just these just gases and movement, right? And so you don't always see the star, but that's what's taking shape. And so I feel like when it feels nebulous and it doesn't have form yet, just stay with it, right? Like let it take its shape, let it run its course, let it move through you, let it move you and work through you and transform you and model you in a way that allows you to become in service of that thing and let it start to shape you to be able to do what you're supposed to do with that energy or with that mission. And for me, it's not a passion, it's certainly a calling, right? And so I'm talking about the thing that you feel called to do, not the thing that you like feel passionate about. Like, oh, I'm passionate about like, you know, performing arts or I'm passionate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that wake you up at night and the things that are difficult and that are inconvenient in your life, right? Like callings are super inconvenient, right? They do not line up with your schedule. They do not line up with, right? Like these things come out of the blue and God is like, I know you had other plans, (laughs) right? But this is what's on the table right now, right? So it is about tapping into those things that feel also super insurmountable. You don't have to know the full way, but if it keeps coming up, it keeps lighting up through you. If you keep getting signaled to answer, I would just challenge all of us to listen and to dial in and just to take the first step because the very first steps that we take are really critical for us to like actually see that there's a path to begin with, right? But resistance, which is what I did for so long, right? Resistance like doesn't make it go away, right? It continues to show up and it can show up and and tap you and whisper to you or also haunt you, right? And so it's easier if you kind of listen earlier on and also so that you don't have to look back and say like, I wish I had done this, right? You always want to be able to say, even if something doesn't work, I I really feel good that I, I vested myself into this thing and this is what came of it and maybe it didn't work, but you know what? I put my all into that. And there's fruits also on the other side of it. Part of your highlight reel now, looking back, is, oh, you did this film festival. You wrote a couple of books and you work with all these celebrities. And, you know, so it's kind of easy to make the assumption that you just kind of you found your calling and then you jump in and you have all this success, but that's not really the reality of the situation, right? You start off in your living room, having these little groups, sharing what you know that you're, 
you know, trying to help people, educate people. So talk a little bit about the, the earlier days of yeah. evolving into the brand that became Mama Glow. Yeah, I love this kind of question because I feel like there's so many people who will be like, yo, can we talk about like people want to come to where you are seated now and ask right. about how it's like, well, I'm like, do what, do exactly what you're doing now. Like do what you're doing now. It has to be done. Right. Like it can't be just like talk to people who are wherever you believe them or perceive them to be. It has to be that right now I'm committed to connecting with the people who are already here. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and when I think about that, I think about how a lot of people who are in similar networks or in the same like circles together, we've all done this together. We all like sort of risen together. Because you had nutritional clients before and yoga clients, and you're already being of service when you were stepping into this. I was already doing that. But what I mean, too, is that all the people who I look to my left and my right now were also at the, we were also coming up together. And so it's not about, let me try to get a meeting with Light or with Latham or with this one. No, look to your left and right. Those are the people that are going to come up with you. Surround yourselves with those same people because that's what I did, right? So I was amongst all of my friends and we were all building together and we were all influencing each other and all supporting each other and like all sending each other people, clients and whatnot, right? That was critical. So community is so key. And that definitely helped me in the beginning. It was like folks like, oh, you should connect with this person or let me, you know, send you this person or, oh, I have this client or, so it was a lot of that help, right? In the beginning, it was a lot of just using what I had in the moment, right? Which was, I have this little space, like you can come here. This is what I know, you know, sharing what I knew, doing the nutritional work. I went to do uh, integrated nutrition and then I brought that into the work as well. I did a lot of like food counseling, but also did like, you know, cooking for clients and stuff like that too earlier on. And I just like really put in the work. And one of the things that I feel like doesn't happen as much now, but when I look back on it, I'm thankful that I did. There were so many things that I did that was like just to practice, you know, just to the people say people calling it getting your name out there. But for me, it was just like also practicing and building community, practicing and building community. So if someone asked you to come speak or do this panel or whatever it was, I was like doing those things, going out and doing those things, serving. And many times those things were not like paid opportunities. And so it was a foundation of service, but also like knowing that like part of it is that you have to pour in, right? And you have to invest in yourself, but you also have to invest, invest in the future that you want to create, which is eventually there's going to be a time where Nobody could ask me to come for free, right? But for now, like I need to like figure out like how to create this thing that I'm building. And sometimes that is like going to this conference or speaking here or doing this thing or this favor or whatever it was and seeing it as also an opportunity for me to grow myself, right? Not really not transactional because the work that we do also is so village-based that it cannot be transactional. It cannot be that like, oh, I'm going to do this for this, right? It's really like, okay, in support of community, in support of this person, like bringing in other people. Sometimes I'm like building a community around them for the birth, right? Which might include lactation support and maybe acupuncture, other things. So I had to cultivate those relationships, right? Which meant that sometimes I was meeting with people, I was learning about their services, I was receiving their services, I was inviting them like, hey, I'm speaking on this thing. Do you want to come too? So all of that was like, a lot of those people are practitioners that I still work with to this day and mm. that, you know, support my clients or that we support each other. We share people, but mainly 
a lot of us teach. And I think that the biggest gift that I can give now is one of giving back to students and people who are coming up through teaching. But I did not start out being able to do that. I had to start out doing the work. And what the work means is stuff that is thankless, right? Like nobody appreciates, right? It was creating everything from scratch to from like materials to give to clients to like web stuff and like spending my little money to make my first website and how that was such a huge financial investment. And, you know, all these things, you know, were part of it. And then doing little businesses along the way, like partnering with someone and like, oh, this worked for this period doesn't work out anymore. And there were so many things that I did, but in the backdrop or the background, I would say this work was looming and finding its way to unfold, but I had to continue to stay focused on it. Right. I couldn't like abandon it and then come back, you know, like I had to stay. And so it was just staying committed to every day showing up to do some work in this field, whether it was like working with clients prenatally for prenatal yoga, which I did a ton of, doing nutrition support for clients, do doula work, doing a couple births a year that were pro bono. I worked with teenagers. I worked with teen moms to early 20s. I would work with immigrant women. I would work with people who were unhoused. And this was mainly in Hudson County, which had like the highest maternal mortality rates at the time. And so this was an effort to kind of reduce that. So I was working with communities like that. And I had a, like a cap that like at least, you know, three a year would be from communities that needed me in that way, right. That I would do. So part of that also was built in to always do service. And so to me, it was like showing up to do it. And as I talk to people or as I think about it now, it's like, you just have to continue to work and and not in this yeah, like do the work kind of like flowery way, but in the way of like understanding what you're being called to do, right? Because that's really critical. You can spend a lot of energy doing things that other people want you to do that's not actually on your heart. And as you figure out what kind of medicine you have on your heart and how you can utilize it to help heal, then you can actually deploy your skill sets, right? So you can actually do the things that you're here to do. And from a heart-centered space, if you are really focused on making money only, if you're not focused on solving problems, if you're just focused on like, let me find the fastest way to get paid, then nothing will feel fulfilling. You won't feel your way through the work. And also you won't support people, right? It won't feel good and you won't help people. The way to do this in anything that you do, whether it's like the most banal thing, I don't care if it's finance, there's a way to do that with integrity and with love and with tenderness and and through the heart. And so for me, it was like always like staying in my body, doing things that like reminded me to be present and helped other people to connect with themselves. But I would definitely say that I became a single mom when I was in this process. And so building a business when you have a child living in New York city as a single parent is like really intense. And so that was very challenging for me. I had a roommate in that time to like help offset the costs. And she was awesome. She has a son now too. She learned a lot about parenting and then ended up having a baby, which was great, a son. But that too was its own thing, right? Like I had to move through all those things and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for those challenges. Cause when I look back, I'm like, wow, I remember the struggle, right? I remember the stress, the economic stress. I remember what that feels like. 
really well. I remember what it feels like to have housing insecurity. I always had food, but I remember like what it felt like to be on the verge of like not having housing or not having, you know, money or not knowing where money was going to come from. I, I know how that feels like in my bones. And I think that that was also like a really strong, you know, sort of motivator to figure out how to provide for my son too. So that's another thing. Like, I feel like so many people get caught up in not pursuing the calling because they feel like, oh, it's not going to pay right away. Or there's all kinds of things that can be impediments, right? But certainly like if financial security is an issue, like it's really hard for people to focus on building the dreams and the lives they want to live when they don't know where the next money's coming from or even their food or whether or not they're going to get evicted, right? And so I'm not saying this in a way of like separating out real life circumstance, but I'm saying in addition to us figuring out like how do we navigate our real life circumstances, like how do we create the space in our lives to actually honor where we're headed, right? Which is going to be outside of, you know, this moment that is really challenging and can be really hard to see your way out of. But I was able to find my way. And I think that that's important too. You also had a lot of people advising you that making a business or building a platform around being a doula was too small of a niche to really make the difference that you wanted to make. And I'm sure some of those people were really smart and had built big things. So how did you overcome that advice from people and, and continue down your, your path? Because even for people who, have, who know their calling, it could be very, you know, yes. difficult. It's a great question. Because you don't know if this person represents the universe trying to help you or, or do not, I be right? stubborn? Well, you you brought up the word, which is like one of my key qualities, which is that I'm stubborn. I don't quit things. And <laughs> it's like, I'm just so stubborn that when I commit to something, I'm in, right? And so once I decide, and it takes me sometimes a minute to get there, but once I'm in, there's no quitting. And so I think that what it was for me also was this is like healthy dose of like total naivete, a lack of experience and also just hopefulness. Like I felt like I could do something. I was just seeing it very small. Right. And like just super targeted, but I knew that I could make a difference in the way that I wanted, but I always also did see that this was going to be beyond me and bigger than me. And what I asked of spirit I do remember this light. I remember saying like, you know, as I'm doing this, you know, like what I'm inviting in is this invitation for something greater, right? Like I don't want to be at the center. I might have to hold it for a long time and nurture it and like be sort of this arbiter of safety and and provision and support of this thing as I nurture it. But I don't want to be, I want this thing to be beyond me. I want it to grow beyond and expand out. So I was like, if we can do this, I think that's what we need, right? Which was basically like move upward and then outward. I was like, so I need this type of trajectory for me to hold this thing that's like trying to be built. And I asked for that and I was like, you know, I'm really open to how that shows up. And so what I believe occurred is that through that ask and through sort of living in New York, if you live in LA or New York, you know that like 
these are places, coastal cities. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of influence. There's a lot of elbow rubbing with people of influence. And so like celebrities are here. It's very easy to connect. It sounds like it, like I'm making it super trivial, but it is really easy to just be sitting next to somebody at a restaurant and you strike up a conversation and they happen to be like, you know, I don't know, movie star. So it just happened that also that was the pathway from Mama Glow to like create awareness around birth and reshaping the way that we saw it in public discourse. And, and then certainly when we had this conversation around maternal health and the crisis in this country to really position years later to position as an authority in conversation and an organization that's like leading the charge with like supporting legislation and leading the charge in training doulas and things like that. I had to not make it about me. I had to see that I could be a vessel and a teacher and also just somebody who holds a vision and creates something that supports other people. And I love that. I love to create things that support others. Like I love cooking for other people so they can eat, right? And they come over and I feel really good about that. Like when I see people satisfied, right? Or the trainings where people can come in and I have a philosophy of teaching them everything I know. I believe they should know everything I know. And then they can process that through their bodies and embody it and then bring it out into the world through their own way. I feel like that's like a gift that I have that I need to continue to pour out. And so I believe that that's what kept me anchored when I was hearing people say, this is not a business or this, you can't do. Cause I heard that. I still hear that <laughs> from people. They're like, still like, well, I don't really understand. I was like, it ain't for you to understand. Bye. You know? So it's like, <laughs> I take it now. Like these are going to be the same people who tell, you no, that are like the first ones to say, like, I knew them when, they're the first ones mm-hmm. to like call because you. of me, they're able to do what they're doing. Now. Exactly. Right? They're the first ones to be like, let me hold, <laughs> let me hold $20, right? No, uh-huh. but they're the first ones to ask you for something, but also to lay claim over knowing you and lay claim over having influenced or supported you, lay claim over being your first believer or whatever, when they were really planting seeds of doubt. And so I just wanna inspire and have us all think about like, there's a lot of things that we plant every day when we show up to like this garden of life, you know, and, and some of those things are weeds and weeds strangle all the things that we're growing that are healthy. And some of those things are, you know, not meant to be there. And so Mm -hmm. like, we have to constantly be in a space of tending, which means that we're like, you know, weeding and recycling and composting. It means we're also planting it means sometimes there's crop cover and we're just letting things chill and ruminating on spring, right? There's different seasons for different things, but like figure out for yourself, you know, what season you're in and give yourself the supports necessary to like move through that. And sometimes that does mean, and for me, it does definitely means to really like release the tether and desire to be in favor with others, have them believe in you or like sometimes release like the advice because it it comes always with good intention, but not always desired. Right. And so if we can sort of also shake some of that and understand that that's through that person's lens of experience and not my own, then you can separate yourself a little bit and continue the path. And that's what I think is most important. But the other very good quality that is underrepresented and underappreciated is stubbornness. I am stubborn 
And I believe that it's, but the stubbornness, I'm just being joking, but it is faith, right? It is commitment. It's like a belief in yourself that allows you to anchor and really ground your feet and, and dig them into the earth and say, no, I'm staying right here. I'm planting right here. I'm rooting right here. Right. And that's, mm. I think that's what I had to do was I had to like anchor myself and say, no, this is it. And even when those things come, it's like the wind, you know, if you think about trees, when they are rooted in the ground, what keeps them steady is, is not just the incredible root systems. They're also growing upward towards the sky. Right. So there's this interesting balance between like effort and surrender between rooting and also climbing, right. And reaching. And what also happens right? What also happens like is that when they're grounded, they're also really vulnerable to the elements, right? And so here comes wind and wind is like the voices, right? The people saying the things, right? Wind carries the voice, right? So here's people voicing things on the wind and it does this to you, right? It makes you sway in consciousness, right? And so the tree moves like this, it sways, but guess what it does when it sways? It gets stronger, So the movement of the wind, the stress on the tree, right? People Mm. talking, right? Saying these things to you to sway you. That movement actually makes you, makes a tree stronger. And so you actually, through this process, we're supposed to come on the other side, actually more fortified. So it's okay that they say those things, right? Because we are rooted in who we are and we know what we're here to do. And if we stay anchored, we can actually use the wind as a way to actually provide us more strength. How are you thinking about the concept of success these days, given all that you've experienced, all that you've gone through, all that you've witnessed in your clients and other people trying to build or create what you've created? How are you thinking about that? Obviously, it's not about money, but what is it about? Yeah, you know, so interesting because like, I I feel like success is like being able to shut off your computer for the weekend, be with your family, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to say, I think I'm going to go see my son this Friday and not having to feel right and not having to feel like, oh, there's this thing I have to show up for or this or that. It's being able to not just take a vacation because I feel like, Vacate. I love vacation. But what I mean is that success is like building a life that you don't have to escape, right? Like mm. you don't have to go someplace to feel at home. You don't have to go someplace to feel yourself, right? Like to me, success is like, no, I'm actually every single day waking up and living into this dream and waking up and living into the practices that fortify and and that sustain me and that keep me resilient. Every day I'm like living the life, not like waiting until I go on vacation. And then I'm like Instagramming the life, right? Like today I'm living that life, right? Like after I see you, I'm going to continue to do the things that I do that like make me feel like I'm in a dream. And that's a new mm-hmm. success. It's like, and then when you realize and people are like, wow, like when they look and you're like, oh, wow, I am, I guess, doing that thing that I always wanted to do. Right. So, so it's not just like being able to buy stuff or, and that's all great. Like, I I think all those things are wonderful. Like to like the financial things are wonderful, but money is a tool. Right. And so I think about it, like, what is it affording though? And what is time, right? Like time, having time 
it's like the most precious thing. It's like, we have so precious little of it. So like being able to expand time is like being able to have access to resources that allow you to do the things that you want to do with your time. And so that to me is success, right? Like being able to have your own time, do what you want to do in your time, not be on someone else's time and letting time do what it does. Cause I don't believe time likes to be managed. I don't like time management. And for me in my life, I don't like to to say, oh, I'm coming at this time. I like to be like, oh yeah, I'll be there in the evening or I'll be there, you know what I mean? And I want to be fluid with it. And that to me is also part of it too. Like being able to do that and not be in this constraint thing or like in 30 minutes, I'll see you in 30 minutes. Like not having a regimented way of, of dealing, being more fluid, being more open. So those are the things that I feel like are, are success. And then I think, you know, being able to be in community, being able to be in community, being able to, watch the people that I have poured into become successful in their paths and like support them and mentor them. I think the best thing that we can do when we have a longer time horizon on this planet is to like reach back and pour into younger people who are learning and help them as they navigate and see if they can like move over things with ease that we had to like struggle through and so I try to do that too. And to be able to do that feels like success to me too. But yeah, I find it to be those kind of things. Like anything that feels like liberation, what is liberatory? Like what is, mm. what is freeing? What is it? Like I think about like being able to be in my roof or in the garden and not like worried about having to go online or posting or just like being present, right? Like to me, that's what I feel like is success. Being able to just cook and hang out and do the things that like really ground me and make me feel joy and, and help me to stay in mastery of my nervous system. That is really important. Whenever I feel off of that, like if I'm off that, that means that the things that I'm doing are super not aligned, right? They're not aligned with like how I move, which will take me out of presence and out of this space of not just joy, but just of calibration. If I find myself off like that, then I have to look at everything I'm doing because I'm like, wait a minute, why does this feel this way? Right. And so that's another thing that's important too, is being able to feel and let everything be an arbiter and a communication tool through my body about like how I want to be in the world. And so that is important to being able to check in and be like, Oh, what do I need right now? What do I need right now? What do I need right now? And that to me also was not afforded like our ancestors. Like when did they ever get to rest or be like, hey, let me lay down or let me go meditate. Let me go look at that sunrise. Let me go just look at this tree. Like our ancestors did not get to do the things that we get to like actually live into these days. You know, we we get to do, we get to like integrate practices that they basically created to survive. And we get to utilize those practices to just to stay in our bodies. And so I like to honor those who came before me and in my ancestry by living into the practices and doing the things that they also couldn't do and that they probably dreamt for. And I feel like that's our responsibility as well. And to me, that also is like success, like not doing more work and doing more of what like, you know, the capitalist framework wants us to believe is what signifies success, but actually doing less work and doing more living right? And doing more growing and reading and, you know, exploring and barefooting and all the things that like, you know, when you look at children and you see them just free, that's success to me, right? It's, it's just really freedom. It's re- liberation, really. 
if a listener is 20 something weeks pregnant and they live wherever in the middle of America, somewhere, somewhere away from you, right? And they hear this conversation and they think, okay, well, I want a doula. First of all, are all doulas created equal? And second of all, what should they look for to discern whether or not they should work with this person versus that person? Well, it's a great question. Well, all people aren't created the same. So I feel like all doulas aren't going to be the same, but there is a doula for every person. So there is a person that's just perfect for you that you can meet. And there's doulas in every state, in every little city. There's also virtual doulas if you're in a place rural or hard to get to. But what I would say is this, you know, this time in one's life is designed to be transformative, which is why it's like 40 weeks or so, right? It's not like two days, like fruit flies, right? Like you have a lot of time to evolve self and to grow. And so this is a time to like read and reflect. It's a time to start to build up your village. When this work was happening hundreds and hundreds of years ago, I mean, basically women have been supporting women in birth since the beginning of time, right? So the oldest known profession is actually midwifery, right? So we know how to do this and we know how to be in support of each other and in community with each other. So even if you not have a skilled care provider, non-clinical care provider, like a doula, you might have like a cousin or a friend, right? Who makes you feel safe that you want to bring into the delivery room with you. And that person is also effective. What I would say though, is in our current climate in the United States where birth is kind of precarious sometimes, where we do not have incredible systems to support people, where you may not have the best hospital or access to the best care, you know, it is really important to find people who can help you navigate, who can help you learn advocacy tools, who can help you and your partner, if you have one, to be the best educated as possible, and people who can help be the emotional and physical support. And so I would look for people who make me feel seen, who have shared values, who listen, who aren't just trying to sell you, but are trying to make sure that you feel supported. And also know that like doulas work on a sliding scale. So if you feel economically challenged by like bringing in another expense right around your birth, know that these are people that you can actually reach out to and they could say, look, like based on your income or whatever, like let us know what you can pay. And then people work on that all the time. People work like that. So there's no reason for you to not go without support. It's really important if you would like someone that you make sure to reach out to people so they know that you're there and that they can support you. And if someone can't do it, they can send you to someone else. But that, and that's our code of ethics is to always make sure you have the support you need. So I would say that those are the most critical things. And when you have your questions, There's a lot of questions you can ask, but I think the main thing is as you're feeling through conversation with someone and looking into their eyes, I would definitely recommend doing a Zoom meeting or in person so that you can really feel their energy. You're going to select somebody not because they went to this particular program or because they have this background and experience. You're going to select them because of how they make you feel. And so you want to just make sure that you're present to who's in front of you so that you can really receive that download, right? Like what's coming up for me around this person? This person seems awesome. And make sure that like everyone involved, like if your partner is down with them too, then that's a great, you know, that's a great person to select. So I would definitely say to tap into your energy. Don't get caught up in like 
oh, this person's done this or that or accolades. Accolades are wonderful, but when it comes down to it, you just need somebody who who really, really gets you and who can, you know, fight for you, stand by you. And that's what I would say. And we have amazing doulas all over the country and world at Mama Glow. So if you're ever looking, we're happy to support too. Beautiful. Well, we'll definitely put those in the show notes, links to your website and others resources. And yeah, I like to finish the conversation just looping back around to childhood, you know, the whole cabbage patch (laughs) and the role playing with being pregnant, obviously was, as you mentioned, it was foretelling what was to come. And gosh, I just want to acknowledge you for being stubborn, right? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> turns out that's your best trait. It's just your stubbornness <laughs> because I do that, tell my mama that. Yeah. I do feel like you, you ha- that's been my experience as well. You have to be non-negotiable and being clear about your calling helps you to do that. And maybe even having some life experience under your belt also helps you to do that. But that's definitely one of the keys to, Staying the course, because then, you know, when you are tempted to sway in the direction of somebody's opinion, that temptation itself, I believe, is a test to resistance training for your calling. So I'm so glad that you brought all that up and shared your experience with all of that, because I think it's important for people to remember, because we all know it deep down within, but it's easy to forget when you get caught up in our societal sort of conditioning around overnight success and, you know, the three easy steps to hack this and do that. And it's like, no, that's not really what's happening at all. Those people (laughs) are speaking from the chapter 89 of their book there. You're not hearing what's happening on chapters one through 80 where they were struggling as well. So everybody has to kind of go through that, that period of uncertainty and all you have with you is your faith and your stubbornness. And so Thank you for being so committed to your path and for living, being able to live to tell the tale. And it's always a pleasure to just, you know, connect with you in person. I feel like we never get enough time to do that. So I am going to make it my business when I'm in New York again. I don't know when that's going to happen, but definitely reaching out. We're going to cross paths and sit down and and have another catch up. Absolutely. We have to do that. It will be my pleasure and honor. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Latham Thomas. To get more information about Latham and her Mama Glow platform, just go to mamaglow.com. That's M-A-M-A-Glow, G-L-O-W.com. You can also follow Latham on social media at Glow Maven. G-L-O-W-M-A-V-E-N. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you may see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly, and it comes with bonus commentary. So it's a really nice companion to the hardback version of the book if you already have that. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. 
finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help share these conversations and hopefully make a difference in someone else's life. It only takes 10 seconds to rate the podcast. Just look at your screen, go to the Apple Podcast app if you're not already there, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars and just click the star on the far right and you left the rating. If you want to go further and leave a review, that would be appreciated as well. So thanks in advance for that. Make sure you're subscribed so you're notified about the next episode when it comes out on Wednesday. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.